0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Hello, I'm Lionel Burney, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about Golden Richard, Golden Anna, and Golden Tom with Silver Daniel or Bronze Daniel. I don't know. I can't call you Golden Daniel. Daniel Fribe, how are you?
2: Good line. Looking forward to this. We've had some feisty exchanges in the green room. Um, <laughs> broad, broadly on the same page, but more railing against the world rather than against each other, which is good to know.
1: What was the quote about? Was it originally about Mark Cavendish? Um, sometime somebody said he's uh, like a. Um, I know what you're going to say. It a was, man with a fork in a world of soup. I used
2: that about Mark Cavendish, but it was actually something that I think Noel Gallagher said about his brother, or vice, or Liam Gallagher said about his brother. Um, yeah, and I, right. I ripped I do, it I off. do
1: occasionally feel. Yeah. Yeah, I do occasionally feel like that. Delicious bowl of soup in front of me, and all I've got is a fork. A, a, a
2: very a very th- a very, very thin soup as well, like a consomme, not a not a thick, <laughs> chunky potato and leek where a fork might actually be quite
1: useful <laughs> absolutely yeah well that's, this is not the cycling soup cast this <laughs> is the cycling podcast and it's the olympic games which is uh, well it's a big deal in the world of sport and it's a big deal in the world of cycling these days i mean i'm talking from the old timers perspective i remember the 84 88 92 when it was still um an amateur Games. Uh, no professionals were able to take part in the Olympic Games, but the professional era is now, well, it's generations, isn't it? It's uh, 25 years. Um, the first professional games were in Atlanta in 1996, and um, the cycling has taken center stage over the weekend. The men's road race kicked off uh, the cycling program with a gold medal for Richard Carapaz of Ecuador. Only Ecuador's second ever gold medal, so a really big deal for. Uh, Carapaz in Ecuador, a very strong attack initially with Brandon McNulty of the U.S. Uh, to hold off the chase group of Walt van Aert, Tadej Pogacar, and the rest of a really very strong chase group. And on the finish line in the motor racing circuit, van Art beat Pogacar in a very close sprint for the silver and gold medals. And if we thought that was a good race, well, Sunday's women's road race was uh, well, it was a wild card, wasn't it? It was an extraordinary outcome. We'll talk about that. Uh, We'll also hear Lizzie Banks' views on the women's road race. There's all sorts of suggestions that the chase group had no idea that the Austrian rider Anna Kiesenhofer was still up the road. She took the gold medal, having been out in front since Kilometre Zero. Annemiek van Vluten of the Netherlands took silver, and Elisa Longo-Borghini took the bronze. And then this morning, Daniel, we both watched the men's cross-country mountain biking, uh, won by Tom Pidcock of Great Britain the big showdown between matthew van der Poel of the netherlands and pidcock didn't really materialize because van der Poel had a very nasty looking crash he went ha- over the handlebars they went off the rock drop on the first lap uh, and he sat on the ground for a while he did get back up and uh, get back on his bike and chase but um, was although he was overtaking people he never really got himself back up to Not- the front end of the race and
2: not a great couple of days for the old Dutchies, um, as far as well the the cycling events are concerned, um, Lionel. Because you, you mentioned yesterday there was some well a lot of uncertainty. Um, it seemed in the ranks of the Dutch team about time gaps or who was still down the road, and I see now that there's there's some debates on social media about whether van der Poel did or didn't expect there to be a wooden plank um, at the point on the course where he crashed, where he sort of it was kind of a, a jump, I don't know the terminology I think in the test event, which was last year, um, there was a, a plank, and I don't know whether on the recons earlier this week, I, I, I guess the riders have been allowed to recon the course um i don't know whether it was there then but there seems to be some disagreement uh, over whether it was or wasn't and that might have contributed to the crash
1: well he was the only one who went down at that particular point in the race at was right behind him and and managed to get round with some very quick reactions uh we'll talk about the cross-country mountain biking in the final part of this podcast at, Unashamedly, from a road cycling perspective, we're not going to try to pretend that Daniel knows all the terminology for the rocks. Did you drop not guess? Or or the or the or, or an endo. Um, we will talk about what this means for Tom Pickock, and uh, you know, set it in the context of of Matthew van der Poel and Walt Van Art as well. You know, we've we've talked a lot about the um, this generation of riders who have cut their teeth in cyclocross, uh, showing themselves not just to be fantastic cyclocross riders who Um, then been excellent on the road but just uh, a generation of um, well almost once in a generation talents all coming along more or less at once or one after another perhaps just a little bit on some other racing before we get into the men's road race at the Olympics as I mentioned last week Dylan Groenewegen and Fabio Jakobsen each won stages of the Tour de Wallonie Um, both of them winning their first races since that terrible crash at the Tour of Poland which uh, Groenewegen um, took the, uh, the the bulk of the opprobrium for and Jakobsen came off worse in terms of the injuries but both back to winning ways and they ended the Tour de Wallonie tied two stage wins each the other stage went to the American rider Quinn Simmons of Trek Segafredo and that gave him the overall victory uh, Luis Leon Sanchez of Astana that was Astana's 10th win of the season which when I had a look if you take out all of the national championship wins uh, there are six of them. Uh, actually, only their fourth. Um basically race race win of the season other than National Championships. I know they still count, but it made me realise that it's been pretty slim pickings for Astana this season. Do you know what was also unusual?
2: Well, what was unusual about that? Astana, if you look back, I did a bit of a deep dive into some stats about how Astana win their races um, earlier this year. And I remember being staggered by the, the tiny percentage of races they have won over the last three or four years in any form of sprint. They, the vast majority of Astana's race wins come via solo um, attacks which says a lot about their roster really doesn't it um, they've got a lot of climbers a lot of guys like Leo, Luis Leon Sanchez who hasn't won that many sprints from small groups in his career I don't think um, second in that race or Juan Ayuso the 18 year old who we mentioned last year UAE's um, debutant their, their next phenom off the production line I thought that he was going to make his pro debut in San Sebastian um, but no Um he did it this weekend second already a massive amount of expectation a massive amount of hype about him really interesting story um, I think he spent four years in as a teenager in Atlanta speaks perfect English from a, a very wealthy family by, by all accounts um, but I think Well, he hails from the Costa Blanca and I think we're going to be hearing a lot about Juan Ayuso in the next few weeks and months.
0: Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
1: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, who are the title sponsors of the Cycling Podcast. We've been running a competition. If you would like to win a three-month subscription to the Super Sapiens app and a three-month supply of the Abbott Libra sensors that go on the arm and give continuous glucose monitoring readings. Um, this is technology that really is life-changing and, and life-saving life in a way for diabetics, but can also have um, give some real insights into athletic performance and uh, energy levels on and off the bike. And we've been asking people to send their audio submissions. 60-second pitch, why should you win Uh, a supply of super sapiens um, patches go to thecyclingpodcast.com to send us your entry and uh, look at the rules and all of that sort of thing but it's very simple make your pitch and this is one of our most recent entries
0: hi cycling podcast my name's shona i'm from east Lothian, and i had my second baby two years ago nearly and i've been coming back to training both running and on the bike uh, ever since really And I would love to win the Super Sapiens competition because I've become very interested this year in how the menstrual cycle affects your training and how it affects specifically the energy needs you have for your different interval sessions or long runs, how what you need might be quite different from one week to another within the same month. So I feel like the Super Sapiens system would give you a really great insight into that, the fact that you're offering these three months so you could see uh, how that progresses over several cycles. would be really fantastic. Uh, So I would love to win it. Thank you very much for the podcast. I love it. Keep it up.
1: We'll be sifting through all of the entries sometime a little bit later this summer. Um, We already uh, decided the winner from the Giro d'Italia competition, um, but we've extended the Tour de France competition. So uh, do keep your entries coming and we will team up with Super Sapiens to pick some winners. So that's uh, if you want to know more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Now, Daniel, first up, the Olympic games men's road race won by Richard Carapaz of Ecuador, a very impressive performance by him. Um, but it was, you know, the, the, the watching and waiting game behind, wasn't it? Everyone keeping their eyes very firmly on Wout van Aert. He had the bulk of the responsibility to do the closing down in the late stages of the race. It looked like all eyes were on him or perhaps on Pogacar. Nobody really wanted to let Pogacar go, uh, too far he was kept on a fairly tight leash but a, a really uh, thrilling last 50 or 60 kilometers I thought after what had been a reasonably slow burn but I think a slow burn for a number of reasons one the difficulty of the course two the very small teams I mean uh, Carapaz had only one teammate of course uh, Jonathan Narvaez um, the only other Ecuadorian rider in the race and um, the biggest teams had only five riders the Dutch the Belgians the French Italians Um, I think were the teams with five riders so as I said last week a real wild card of an event the road races at the Olympic Games because the sort of tactical handbook goes out of the window to some degree
2: yeah and the tactical handbook also goes out the window a little bit when we see these very mountainous one day races which is not you know there isn't a classic on the calendar. Okay, you could say Lombardy is pretty mountainous, but we saw at the Innsbruck World Championships a couple of years ago, and also on uh, on Saturday that um, you get interesting scenarios when you have you know big mountain passes or very steep long climbs like the Mikuni Pass, which is the the final sort of decisive climb. You get a, a sort of configuration of a race that we're not really used to seeing, and um, you know there are obviously riders there who were just on exceptionally or exceptional form. Like Welt van Art, and then you get the pure climbers, and it makes for a really interesting sort of battle um, between between the different categories of, of riders, with as you say, not the same resources that they would usually have in you know trade teams in road races with you know six or seven domestiques, and how they they decided or they tried to use those resources was really interesting, and it was only really. Belgium and Slovenia that decided to take any control of the race or, 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 or tried to. Um, Jan Tratnik, I don't know, I thought... Jan Tratnik thought that he was pulling... His job was to pull until the Olympics in Paris, I think, in 2024. I don't know if he, I don't know if he stopped yet. He might still be going around the Fuji Speedway circuit, but he did an incredible job. And then um, Belgium, they obviously had a plan to take... Van Aert as far up the, uh, the final climb as possible. And and then, well, I, I guess, ideally, they would have liked to have someone with him um, towards the top of that climb. Uh, Vanderpool's role or what he tried to do was quite curious. I thought, I don't know how to what extent that was planned. Um, he went away on the sort of undula- undulating section between the uh, Mount Fuji climb and the uh, Mikuni climb with Eddie Dunbar and Nibelian. They stayed off the front for four or five kilometres. And he probably... Used up quite a bit of energy there, therefore wasn't much use to Van Aert after that. But then from halfway up the final climb after Pogachar attacked and then it came back together at the top, it was really, well, it was the Van Aert show, wasn't it? Although Pogacar as well was, was covering a lot of moves. And um, yeah, there were, there were only so many that they could mark, um, weren't there, Lionel? And the final, the decisive move with Carapaz and McNulty went with 25 kilometres to go. And um, I think that was after. Well, it was after Pogacar and Van Aert had brought back full sang. But as I say, um, there was always there was bound to be one move where they sort of looked at each other, and it was up to someone else. And in this case, it was Schachmann that went to the front. But before anyone knew it, um, Nolte and had got 25
1: seconds, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, it was interesting though, wasn't it? I mean, the, the breakaway that went clear at the start of the race got an enormous lead, uh, almost 20 minutes at, some, at one point. Um, but there was no one in it that was really going to um, cause too much difficulty. The The, the best... Known to ride as well. Sagan was in there, wasn't he, for Slovakia? Uh, unfortunately for them, Uri, not Peter Sagan. It's Peter Sagan not starting uh, after pulling out of the Tour de France with with the knee problem. And Nick, Lame- Nick De Lamini of uh, uh, South Africa was also in there, but um it was a, a break that was allowed its head uh, simply because the, the difficulty in the, the second half of the race. Really, from Mount Fuji onwards, um, you know, meant that it was inevitable that they would be clawed back. A very, very long day out, um, you know, 234 kilometres, 4,300 metres of climbing. Uh, So, uh, you know, unless there'd been some. You know, bigger hitters in that break. It wasn't going to cause uh, too much trouble. Nevertheless, as you say, it still had to be reeled in. And uh, as you said, Daniel Jan Tratnik of Slovenia was uh, was outstanding. I mean, he just reminded me of a contestant in World Strongest Man. You know, hooked up to, you know, some kind of shoulder brace, hooked up to the front end of a articulated lorry, um, pulling the whole peloton along for kilometre after kilometre. up and down. And even when he was sort of drifting back and dropped, not quite dropped, but you know, he was was off the back. He still found the energy to come back up to the front and and resume service. Uh, Jan Polench did a lot of work as well. Roglic, um, was dropped, uh, you know, before the, the race really kicked off and, and was not a feature at the finish um, I mean, and that left Pogachar.
2: I mean Roglic it didn't really surprise me with Roglic because um, he's never really that, gone that well in Japan I mean he finished 21st and 25th in the Hakuba Olympic Jump Large Hill in September 2006
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear that's, that's right, a ski I jumping up. version I think it was,
2: of pretty much Roglic he was
1: 29th at the weekend so yeah his, his worst result in Japan <laughs> um, and the Belgians they had probably the, the strongest of the five-man teams really and they did have a plan it seemed to me Greg Van Avermaet the defending champion Golden Greg as you've christened him uh, for well, since he won that title in Rio he was working very early on and, and that said a lot about Van Avermaet as a, as a man as much as a, as a rider you know prepared to um, play his part um, knowing that uh, Van Aert and perhaps even Evnepaul would have a better shout later on Teespenu was active at one phase in the race Mauri van sevenant was was doing some chasing and and some and some probing at various points say they did uh, get Van Aert to that final phase of the race in in pretty good shape but like you say Daniel that Evnopoul move was a a little bit of a strange one because it was too far out um, to have any chance of of going to the finish and it did mean that Belgium one of the few teams that could perhaps have had two riders in the finale um, then didn't which meant that Van Aert everyone understandably would look at him to do the chasing and I suppose a lot of people watching would have thought well there was there were a good group in uh, you know eight nine ten riders um, at one point, I think it was eight riders it settled down to you know why were so few of the others prepared to um, help Van art close down the gap to Carapaz? I mean I think it's
2: because the, it's van' Aert. The
1: answer to me it's because they would just have been towing Van art to the line to to win the sprint. yeah um,
2: i mean the the Belgians there was quite a little quite a, bit of controversy during the tour I was aware of. Um, I was talking to some Belgian colleagues that, that Van Avermaet's selection had not so much raised some eyebrows. Um, you would you would always have expected him to be in the team, but he, he wasn't in particularly good form. And there were certainly people who thought that Dylan Turns would have been a better bet, um, you know, either in, in place of Van Avermaet or one of the other riders, Van Sevenen or Evendipol, one of the guys who didn't do the tour. And I, I think... Looking back, you you would have to say that Van Aert didn't need the group to be as small as it was at the top of um, the final climb. You know, it would have been if there'd been 40 or 50 guys there. But if Van Aert had had one or two teammates at that point, he would would have probably preferred that situation going over the top of the final climb with a slightly bigger group, but with more teammates able to mark the moves rather than be the only Belgian with, you know, 20... Um, it was around about 20 or 15 or 20 guys going over the top of the climb. And, and as I say, you know, there was a move from Woods, which between them, he and Pogacar managed to shut down just as they crested the climb. There was another one by Fulsang. And um, and as soon as they had to rely on someone else, i.e., as I said, Shachman in this case, that was where the trouble started. I also wondered whether the fact that Carapaz went away with McNulty. McNulty was a bit of a Trojan horse in the sense that you, you also get... I always feel that you get into a bit of a battle of egos when you get a really elite group and particularly when there's a climb involved and it it always seems to me that, you know, whenever pogachar moves, Carapaz will always go with him because Carapaz considers himself you know, one of the best climbers or almost equal to Pogacar. So he's much more inclined to go with a Pogachar than he is with someone like a McNulty. Um, I, I wonder if it'd been, it, it would have been slightly different if Carapaz had been the guy to make that move rather than McNulty. But he sort of slipped away by stealth on McNulty's wheel. And before anyone could really realise what was happening, the gap was 20 seconds and they were in trouble at that point
1: yeah let's not forget you know it wasn't a flawless ride by van Aert because uh, around thirty thirty seven kilometers from the finish you know he was in uh he was off the back of the the main group of favorites wasn't he when when Mcnulty and woods were reacting to the the the, the bigger of the pogachar moves so Van Aert then was doing chasing um just to get back to the front end of the race for um, a number of kilometers probably five six seven kilometers and and, and Although he had Molymer and Godou for company, uh, from what I saw, they they weren't necessarily going round him and giving too much of a hand. It was basically all eyes on Vanart, both whether he was chasing to get back to the front or whether he was chasing the final final move down. And you know that that obviously tires uh, tires the legs and uh, and also mentally knowing that he would have to do everything um, to to bring back the, the move. And he did do a lot to try and close down the the move but uh, it, was, it was too late, and Carapaz was clearly too strong, very, very strong, and was smart as well. I thought the the way he got away in the first, well, they made a, sort of an earlier selection, was good. Then the way he got away with McNulty was smart, and then, um, you know, it, it, was, it was strength and timing, and, and the fact that McNulty was fading that, uh, that got him the gold medal. Very impressive ride.
2: Yeah, and I mentioned that battle of egos. I think crucially, he wasn't drawn into it on the, on the climb, uh, on the Mukini pass in the sense that, um, Pogacar did his big attack and McNulty and Woods went with him. And that would have been the, the moment where I would have expected Carapaz to also go across. He, he went across a little bit later with Kwiatkowski, but that wasn't his main move. He, he sort of saved himself. But, um, you know, it was, it was a long way to go for Pogacar to go to think that he might be able to get away either on his own or with a group at 30, or 36k from the finish i mean he said afterwards it was probably a silly move and uh, possibly it was but you can't help but admire the way this sort of carefree um almost kind of infantile in a in a positive way um in a positive sense the way that he rides and you know even his reaction at the finish line for a guy who's just won the tour de france he seemed more delighted than anyone with his bronze medal and um yeah, th- th- he certainly continues to endear himself. I think um, to a lot of neutrals. Just on reactions to the to the result, um, Lionel um, Carapaz was. Was quite outspoken about the lack of support he'd had from the Ecuadorian well, Olympic Committee and National Federation, I guess, as well. He complained about the fact that he, he didn't even have a MASA, he, he and Narvaez didn't even have a MASA in Tokyo, and they'd had to rely on the help of well, some of their INEOS trade team staff in Tokyo. Because, you know, in these cases, well, you mentioned the fact that it was the second ever gold medal for um, Ecuador. The first one was a guy called Jefferson Perez in 1996 in Atlanta he won 20 kilometer walk but you know this is obviously a huge event for Ecuador um, a country that's really suffered like most countries but particularly badly in the pandemic I think and it, 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 there was a desire to turn this into a, a moment of you know a, of great national euphoria and he sort of put the brakes on that by saying well actually you know this this victory belongs to a small number of people who have believed in me.
1: Well, Daniel, you mentioned riders building their seasons around the Olympics. But when you look at the top 10, particularly, you know, raced versus rested, um, the top eight had all ridden the Tour de France. Of those, only Mike Woods pulled out and he pulled out on stage 19. Mike Woods, I thought, was one of the outstanding riders in the race. He finished fifth for Canada, but very, very aggressive, probably more aggressive than than anyone other than uh, than Carapaz and McNulty. Um, through the, the the final fifty or so kilometers, um, real strong ride by him. Ninth place, Adam Yates hadn't raced since liege Baston liege and tenth place, Max Schachmann hadn't raced since win- winning the German road race um, at the end of June or just before the Tour de France. So, raced certainly got the upper hand over rested and perhaps focusing a season around the Olympics uh, without doing the Tour de France. Um, you know, it, did, well, it didn't pay off, did it? Because all of the no, riders- it didn't. That, that were there at the end had been not just ridden the Tour de France, but had been really active in the Tour de France, you know, high overall positions or um, you know, active in the, the big stages.
2: Yeah, particularly in Schachmann's case, because he very deliberately opted not to do the Tour de France, you know, to prepare for the Olympics. And um, yeah, okay, his team at the Tour Bora didn't necessarily miss him. They won stages with Niels Pollitt and remind me, which other stage they won? I don't know Patrick Conrad. Patrick Conrad. Um, but tenth place might be seen as a slightly meagre return um for uh, as you say a whole season based around the olympics don't think that was quite the case with adam yates was it although it was it was a goal um you know he's got other goals coming up he's got the vuelta he wasn't staking absolutely everything on the olympics
1: no and i thought he rode well in the final stages you know at one point in the the second group he was with van Aert and Bettiol at some uh, at one point trying to get back up to the front and then when he did get back up to the front he was quite canny sitting in the wheels and then in the finishing straight he had one card really which was to go early and and hope for the best and he tried that and it it didn't work but um, I thought he rode rode a smart race and And not the the greatest day for the Great Britain team because uh, relatively early in the race, I think there's still 155 kilometers to go. Geraint Thomas and Theo Gagan Hart both came down. They were going over a bridge which has a little ridge in the middle um, which allows the the sections of road to expand and contract in the heat. And it's like a little tram line. And uh, according to Geraint Thomas, Theo Gagan Hart got his wheel stuck in that tram line and went down and Thomas went into the back of him Thomas did soldier on for a bit longer but uh, pulled out of the race and and, uh, Theo Gaginhardt lasted a little bit longer Um, but not the perfect day for Great Britain and I suppose, again, four riders in the field um you know a far cry from the old days when you know an entire olympic cycle was based around ensuring that, that the team would qualify the maximum number of places and and fill those places with riders in in good form uh, admittedly the road race is you know of all of the medals available to british riders uh, probably the, the the hardest one to win just because well, it's one of the hardest ones to win, isn't it?
0: Chute, uh, chute à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please.
1: That's Seb PK to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Many small business owners today are busier than ever because they're focused on managing and growing their businesses on a day to day basis, and they can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. And we have experience of this because a little while back we were looking for a producer to work on L Cycling Podcast, our Spanish language cycling podcast hosted by Rob Hatch and Laura Messiger. And obviously we needed somebody who was fluent in both Spanish and English, but also had an interest in cycling. And so by tailoring the job ad on LinkedIn Jobs, we were able to reach people who had exactly those skills. So if you think that could help your business and want to get started, you can post your job for free on LinkedIn's network and reach over 30 million professionals in the UK. You fill out a targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates. So you get someone with the experience, skills and motivation you need. And then you can use the tools to filter and prioritize the top candidates and choose the ones that you'd like to interview. So LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for your role. And the first job post is free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job ad for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Daniel, there was a real surprise winner in the women's road race on Sunday. The Austrian Anna Kiesenhofer went from the gun in a little group and stayed away all the way to the line, much to the surprise of everybody, especially Annemiek van Vluten of the Netherlands, uh, remember she came to grief four years ago in the rio road race had that terrible crash on on the descent um but uh, one of the favorites in an extremely strong dutch team they had all of these vollering vos van vluten and van der bregen um but they didn't get their act together and use that strength to to pull back the break and all sorts of recriminations afterwards about whether or not uh, they were aware that uh, Kiesenhofer was still up the road and that the gold medal had gone. Uh, Van Vluten did try to break away from the rest of the riders, uh, unclear whether she thought she was going up the road um, to to, to chase gold, knowing that it was was right up for grabs. But she was off the front for around about 20, 25 kilometers before being clawed back. And uh, then she clipped away in the final couple of kilometers and... Well, crossing the line, she gave the good impression of a gold medal winning rider, Uh, but it was only silver for the Netherlands and the bronze went to Elisa Longo Borghini. Uh, Let's hear from Lizzie Banks, who, if things had turned out differently, may very well have been on the start line in Tokyo uh, for the race. Uh, because she would have been part of the Great Britain team, perhaps, had she not uh, crashed and suffered the effects of uh, ongoing concussion at Strada Bianca in the spring. Um, but here are Lizzie Banks' thoughts on the women's road race. Well, Lizzie, the first obvious question is, how did Anna Kiesenhofer win the gold medal in the women's road race? What happened?
0: Well, I guess there's a simple answer to that, which is that she outsmarted everybody else. Um and that's what you've got to do. If you want to beat the best, you've got to find another way of winning the bike race. And really, that's what she did. You know, you can't just wait until the end when you've got riders like Anna Meeg, Anna van der Breggen, Marianne Voss, uh, Demi Vollering, the whole of the, but the Dutch team and the rest of the best in the world. And she did something special. She went from the gun and she just went as hard as she could for pretty much the whole race.
1: What did you know about her before Sunday?
0: Well, this is actually a really interesting question because I tuned in about quarter to seven. As soon as I saw her in the break, I said, oh, that's the rider that I text my director about last year. And I said, hey, maybe we should get this rider on our team. She's really strong. I always... Kind of look out for the results in all of the races um, especially kind of the smaller races and the races where not all the big guns are at because that's the races where it gives the strong riders who maybe aren't quite the best the opportunity to get the results. And I'd noticed her at the Tour of the Ardèche last year and she was almost outclimbing Mavi Garcia she she was up there on the podium and I I did look back through her results I saw that she uh, you know was multiple I T T champion for Austria and she'd been previously the road race champion um, and I actually didn't look back far enough to see that she she had actually won a stage at Mon on Mont Ventoux at the Tour of the Ardèche but but I kind of seen okay well she's dipping her toes in but she she isn't a professional currently so maybe she couldn't get a job maybe she couldn't can, you know, support herself with cycling, but she loves it and she still does it when she can. So I knew she was strong. Um, So that is quite an interesting thing because obviously one of the really big things yesterday is that she was a really underestimated rider. So I wonder how many of the other riders in the peloton are doing their due diligence. I do feel as a professional rider, it is your responsibility to know who people are, Um, it's really difficult. Of course, you can't know everybody. Um, and you can't also know everybody who isn't in a professional team, but these are the kind of things that I look out for. Um, and even if the riders hadn't looked out for them for, for, for things like this themselves, it's then the responsibility of team managers to go, right, which riders are in the break. If we don't know them, I'm going to look them up. And then we're going to report back to the team as soon as they come back to the car for drinks and say, hold on a sec shouldn't be letting this rider who's an ITT specialist uh, get away from us.
1: I mean, perhaps the clues were there. I mean, a, a rider after your own heart, Lizzie, uh, an, an academic turned athlete. I mean, she studied uh, a mat- for a math master's at uh, Cambridge. And, uh, you know, clearly uh, you know, the clues perhaps were there in, in her Twitter feed that she was approaching this race, not only very, very seriously, but in a, in a, in a slightly academic way as well.
0: Totally, I think the first thing that you do if you're not sure about a rider is you go and look on pro cycling stats and and you, you look at their statistics, then it's really easy. Go and have a look on their Instagram, their Twitter, and if they've got a Facebook page. If you go onto her Twitter, the first thing that's on there, or the most recent thing, is about how she's been using the core body temperature sensor um, in order to maximize her heat training for Tokyo. So it's clear to see straight away that this rider is taking things seriously. Many of the riders who were going to the Olympics may not have, you know, had the best preparation in terms of of heat training because they were at the Giro. Of course, it's really hot there. But, you know, you need to really have three weeks of constant heat acclimatization in order to get your body, you know, in order to prepare your body in the right way. And it can be really, really too tricky to fit that in with training, with racing, with altitude training camps, because you're away from home. You're not somewhere where you can find a heat chamber or you can bring a a heat tent to a hotel room. And so actually sometimes the the, the athletes that, that have more time or that are able to really tailor their own program, the best athletes, you know, athletes like Anamique, they have the flexibility to say, hold on a second, I'm not going to go to the Giro. I'm not going to go to La Course. I'm going to do my altitude training. I'm going to go somewhere where there's a sauna um, and I'm going to have the best specific preparation I can. Um, you know, those athletes are on a better playing field than athletes that don't really have a choice in their race program
1: and you talk about there the the communication you know getting online and just checking out the composition of the break but of course communication was a a different proposition during the olympic road race because well most of the rest of the year the riders are used to being able to talk directly to the team car and get all sorts of information throughout the whole race but that just wasn't the case here
0: yeah that's right so pretty much every race we're in we we have radios um 2.2 and 1.2 races which are the lowest classification you're not allowed a radio but all of the races that the world tour teams race you will have a radio apart from european championships world championships and the olympics those races are obviously all raced with your national federation rather than your trade team so that's another kind of complicating factor that you know the majority of the the year you eat you sleep you train you race with one group of people and then for these few days a year and this one day every four years you're then racing with a completely different environment a completely different director um and again it's it's difficult to find that time in a normal rider's schedule to, to bring everybody together um and you don't get opportunities to race together so it can take a long long time for teams for trade teams to to Really nail that communication and and get that communication right. And of course, when you then bring together a different group of people, that can also be really really tricky. I think the most important thing to say about miscommunication is that it is so easy for us to say, "Hold on a second, what were they doing?" When we're looking from the safer and we've got every single piece of information, we've got beautifully crisp. T- TV pictures, commentators that are telling us what's going on. We can check on Twitter for tweets from different federations. We can see, these riders can't see, you know, they're in a big brother bubble of the peloton and occasionally they can come out of it and go to their team car and find out what's going on. But maybe the team car doesn't have the best information. I've had situations in in races where I've been in a break going for a win and my director has actually thought that I was back in the peloton because the director's car communication with the race radio is also poor you know if these riders are 10 minutes up the road in the breakaway what's the race radio like connection like back to the team cars because that's a long long distance for information to travel so you can't it's not as easy to lay blame (laughs) as as you might think it is from the sofa because you just don't know what's going on and what information even the team cars are getting about the situation out on the road
1: I mean this is uh, one of the biggest races in the world, uh, arguably the yeah, biggest the, the, biggest race race. Yeah. the biggest one day race in the world, and the riders in the peloton are uh, racing with only a, only really what they can see i mean and and we can talk about the the, the types of uh, information that 's available to the riders from the, you know the, the motorbike with the with the chalkboard or in this case, I think whiteboard giving time gaps. Um, Which in itself is interesting
0: because personally, I feel that a whiteboard is more challenging to see than a blackboard.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So so basically the information is uh, it's skeleton information anyway. Uh, the information that can be gathered from the side of the road. There are opportunities, but again, um, it's uh, few and far between really. And as you say, dropping back to the team car, although sounds easy in practice, some of these teams... Uh, well, even the biggest team has only, um, you know, got a small handful of riders. So who got, who goes back to get that information, and do they then share it with rival teams? I mean, you know, this is uh, um, well, this is all sort of grist to the mill for the people who say that if you remove race radios, you get more exciting, and more unpredictable racing. But um, from an athlete's point of view, surely having as much information to make decisions uh, would be the, the ideal scenario
0: there There are so many different issues we could spend hours picking apart there one of the things in yeah is yeah, the team sizes are really really small. The biggest team has four riders, the smallest team has one. you know what other team sports do we have where we've got different sizes of teams? you don't have rugby sevens and one one team has seven, one team has five, and then you 've got a couple of teams with two players. you know you just wouldn't see that, but also It's a bit weird because what other team sport do you have when one person stands on the podium at the end of the day? So yes, we have teams like the Dutch, out and out favourite, talked about as the favourite, bigged up, but who do you ride for? And that really was a lot of the problem yesterday. You know, we saw in the first 40 kilometres, the whole peloton was soft pedalling. It was only the Germans for a very, very long time that had concerted team effort, the team together at the front of the peloton. You know trying to do something. They weren't working really hard, but but doing something. The Dutch would, you know, after about 40k, they would kind of send one rider to the front for a little bit, then they'd come back and then they'd send another one. And it was interesting because I thought they were probably working for Annemiek van Vleuten, but the three riders that they sent to the front first that, that we saw from the pictures that we had were um, Demi Vollering, then Annemiek van Vleuten, then Marianne Vos. So kind of didn't really know what was going on. Um, in terms of communication, yes, you have this issue with communication. You have this lack of radios. One thing's, thing that, you know, we know that this is going to be the case, so we do prepare for this. All of the teams will have people by the side of the road in strategic places along the course with. Um, again, whiteboards, and they will have a system, each team will have a different system saying what the race situation is, whether it's usually a traffic light system, green, yeah, this is fine, red, okay, we need to sort this out and do something now, Um, or mm, we're not quite sure. I read in a couple of interviews that actually... Annemiek said that in the final board that they saw going around the speedway circuit, or the the final board that was placed on the speedway circuit, she actually missed it. So, you know, I've been in these races, and it's so easy to miss boards. I think in the World Championships last year, I don't think I saw a single board. um, Because yes, you know, they're there. And yes, you have to prepare for it. But what people sitting on the sofa forget is that you are going full gas. You are so focused. It takes all of your concentration in those hard moments that if you miss that split second where the board is, because, you know, you can't see it from miles away. You can only see it when you're right there. Um, If you miss that, then the situation's gone. I didn't think there was a clear gantry when they went through the Fuji Speedway circuit to say what the gaps were. Um, I understand that Anna van der Breggen thought that the gap of 115 or whatever it was, was the gap from the front of the race to them, whereas actually it was the gap from the front of the race to the two chasers at that time, um, which were Shapira and Plichter. So this is really late into the race. So just so many complicating factors. Whether or not we should use race radios in, in kind of, yeah, Olympic World and European and Continental Championships is a whole another kettle of fish and it's a it's a discussion that well, it's it's the UCI's decision, and obviously they've decided that they don't want to do it. So we just have to work with that.
1: Finally, for Anna Kiesenhofer, you know, the only Austrian in the race, in a way, it's such a simple um, plan because there was only one plan. It was a it was a uh, a fantastic plan, brilliantly executed. And uh, I mean, you, you can't say fairer than attacking right at the very start of the race. And and holding on with what was still a considerable gap. I mean, you know, it wasn't as if they were bearing down her on her in the uh, finishing straight or in the motor racing circuit.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, Anna Kiesenhofer can can be nothing but incredibly proud of her ride, her preparations, her tactics. Everything she did perfectly. And if she hadn't done that perfectly, she wouldn't have got that gold medal. So it's an absolutely exceptional ride, you know, such a special thing to do. And like you say, it's almost like she couldn't have done anything else. She had to do exactly that tactic. You had to get a big enough gap um, and, you know know that there would be chaos behind you and that is so often what happens in these these um, Continental World Olympic Championships it is chaos because nobody wants to take the responsibility because there's such a big goal at stake. It's quite interesting though as well that actually the gap at the finish, you, you, like you say, they weren't bearing down on her but it was only I think one eleven ish um, and it kind of shows that You know, if I were the other teams, I'd be really kicking ourselves because at 20k to go, they had four and a half minutes and there was they were soft pedaling around the speedway. Someone would attack. They would soft pedal. Someone would attack. So she had an absolutely exceptional ride. But she really did begin to tie up in that kind of last 5k. I think you really saw that. Oh, God, the pain, the effort etched on her face, you know, struggling to push those pedals and not surprisingly given everything that she'd been through in such extreme conditions. But it also shows that had had there have been some kind of chase, had people have said, we are going to burn our riders earlier on. What could have been for those favourites, and that is not to take away from Hoffa's achievement because it really is exceptional. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
1: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast. As everyone knows, even Daniel, although he pretends not to, the code to get 25% off all Science in Sport products on the website. Scienceinsport.com is SISCP25. Now, we ran our Science and Sport Super Sunday competition during the Tour de France, asking all of you to predict your winners for the four Sunday stages. Uh, those winners have all been notified, and your prizes will be on their way to you soon. Science and Sport are actually sending all of the goodies to me, and I will uh, send them on to the four winners. Congratulations, and we hope to do something similar during the Vuelta. Well, Daniel, our experience of covering mountain biking uh, is not extensive. I, I don't watch a great deal of mountain biking, I must be honest. But uh, I did watch the men's cross-country race this morning. And uh, as I said at the start of the podcast, um, a, a sort of unashamed look at that race through the prism of road racing is really uh, all, all we can do. Um, and and I suppose we were anticipating from our uh, road racing Bias uh, a showdown between Tom Pidcock and Matthew van der Poel. Uh, van der Poel had made it uh, plain for well, a number of years that hit. the big target was to try and win Olympic gold in the mountain bike race. Um, just very quickly, before we get on that, I mean, do you how do you think he'd have fared in the road race? Do you think it would have been too hard for him? It, would he, or would he have been up there in the, the Van Ark group?
2: He, his presence probably would have changed the race and would have changed the tactical choices that everyone made I mean I did think we were talking earlier about Van Aert the way he rode up that final climb and I think everyone was on the limit the climbers were on the limit so they couldn't necessarily do this but if Van Aert had had to follow constant attacks by climbers I think he possibly would have been worn out to the extent they wouldn't have, have, have been there at the end to even contend for a medal um, but what he was allowed to do was sort of Ride, or he was strong enough to basically ride at his own pace, um, almost like a time trial, the last fifty kilometres, and 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 still be there at the end. But with Van with um, Van der Poel, uh, I mean, he probably would have ridden quite differently to Van Aert, wouldn't he? Um, I think Van Aert probably rode the, the the race exactly the race that he wanted to ride. It's just that it was that there were only so many moves that he could chase. Um, but I think with Van der Poel, and, and you know, again, this the the, the ego just. Discussion. I mean, this is n- no criticism of either of those two riders, but I think we all feel that they are affected by each other, kind of emotionally affected by each other's presence in the race and each other's ego. And I think Van, Van Der Poel being there would have changed how Van Aert rode and wanted to ride.
1: Well, it didn't work out for Van Der Poel in the mountain bike race. As we said at the start, he had uh, a crash, uh, came to grief on the rock drop, over the handlebars and, and landed in a what initially looked quite a painful heap. And uh, initially, I thought, well, he's not going to continue from here. But he did get back on and 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 try to chase. But in common with cyclocross, when the courses are so difficult, technical, and and really it is a case of the cream rising to the top over the course of the hour plus um, that they're racing. Um, once the pattern is set, the pattern is set, and uh, you know Tom Pidcock. You know, he was, I think, on the fourth row of the grid at the start, um, didn't sort of panic. He moved up a bit off the line, um, a hell for leather sprint off the line, and uh, then just sort of, you know, rose up gradually, really. And it was, uh, it, it looked like he was timing it so that from the midpoint in the race onwards, he was in the top three, four, and then he made his move. Um, and uh, he had two Swiss riders for company the defending champion Nino Schurter and the eventual bronze medalist Matthias Flukinger Um, Schurter finished fourth in the end the bronze medal went to David Serrano of Spain but uh, a really impressive ride by Tom Pidcock Um, and I think it doesn't well it bears repeating his his season on the road uh, for Ineos Grenadiers turned pro at the World Tour level at least this season, and, and was the sensation of the spring, wasn't he? Third in Kerner, Brussels Kerner, fifth at Strada Bianca, 15th at Milan-San Remo, where he was a very active right at the end, but perhaps got a little bit carried away, as Rod Ellingworth described it in, in the finale. And then, of course, won Brabansa Pale, second at Amstel Gold Race, sixth at Flesh Wallone, and then broke his collarbone when he was knocked off his bike by a car while out training, uh, that was on June the second, and he was back on his bike again six days later, and was racing again before the end of the month. And well, it was it was a really impressive ride by Pidcock. But what does it kind of mean in the in the grand scheme of things? The the you know where does this set him up? Because he's on the long list to ride the Vuelta for Ineos Grenadiers. Um, that kicks off in a couple of weeks' time and, uh, well, he's got his gold medal in the mountain biking. Does this now mean that it's all eyes on the road from now?
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you look at... I was just thinking about Van der and the, the two contrasting he's ex- experiences he's had this summer. I think he went to the Tour de France being qu- maybe quite ambivalent about the Tour de France, if not about road cycling in general, um, but certainly about the Tour, you know, he's, he... he, he in spite of the the Poulidor sort of tribute on the first couple of days, um, he seemed quite unemotional about, you know, the the idea of riding his first tour, but he was really bitten by the bug. And after a a week, he'd really fallen head over heels um, in love with the tour. And, you know, then he went to Tokyo and he fell head over heels, but in in a different way, in a literal way. And I just wonder whether that will shape or will affect his choices going forward. Um, whereas with with Pidcock, um, you know, w- will this whet his appetite for more mountain biking? I mean, Ineos have have made a, a commitment of some sort, haven't they, to supporting him um, in whatever he wants to do as far as mountain biking is concerned. But yeah, he's certainly got a huge amount of potential in uh, road Riding, And we said last week that maybe quite a lot of Ineos' hopes in stage racing will be pinned on him, might be pinned on him in the coming uh, years. Last week, Lionel, I think I made a heinous error. Um, Generally, there's at least one every week. I I mentioned the book Range by, and I think I said it was written by Dan Coyle and it's written by David Epstein. and I get them mixed up. And I'm thinking about that now because um, that book, Range by David Epstein, um, it talks about how people um top sports men and women have come into uh, well not just sportsmen and women but experts in various fields come into that particular field and um that he sets up that book with the 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 contrasting stories of Tiger Woods and Roger Federer Tiger Woods, who really held a golf club from you know as before he was even old enough, big enough to walk. And Roger Federer, who really played a huge variety of different sports before he found tennis. Tom Pidcock really looks like he was born to ride a bike and, in fact, has ridden a bike almost um, from day one in his in his life. But then, on the other hand, he's um, he's had the benefit of this fantastic range as far as cycling is concerned, with cyclocross, mountain biking and, and road Cycling and he 's really had the best of all worlds in that respect i mean he 's the perfect sort of prototype for a cycling champion.
1: yeah, I was thinking about the crossover between road and and mountain biking i mean it 's something we see every now and again when the Olympics come around, and you know relatively few um, examples of someone excelling at both disciplines I mean they are obviously very different uh, technically. But, um, you know, bike handling is a fundamental when you're riding shoulder to shoulder in a bunch of 200, uh, as it is when you're riding on a single track or, or over rocks. Um, you know, he just looks so natural on the mountain bike. You know, he, he's, a, he's a little guy. The mountain bikes with their big wheels these days are showing my expertise here. Everyone with their big wheels. Um, but he looks totally in control of it, almost like uh, someone on the high wire. You know, the the hands out on the the wide bars, um, balancing on the top of the bike, but totally in command uh, of what he's doing. Um, but when you look back at the Olympic mountain bikes, uh, the the road name road rider names that sort of leap out are few and far between. Cadell Evans was uh, rode it a couple of times. He was seventh in two thousand. Miguel Martinez was the Olympic champion in 2000 and his dad, Mariano, had won the King of the Mountains in the Tour de France in 1978 and there was a lot of talk about Martinez perhaps switching over to the road uh, but didn't do so to any great effect. I suppose...
2: Uh, rode for rode for Mape and Phonak, didn't he? But didn't, he, like, as you say, it didn't really make much of a splash at all.
1: Not really, no. Michael Rasmussen, of course, um, was uh, was a mountain biker before he uh, raced on the road and uh, almost... rider,
2: uh, rider Heijadal,
1: yeah. Yeah, um, but I don't think rode the Olympic Games uh, I suppose the the one big name um, Jean-Christophe Perrault who had a long mountain bike career uh, was a silver medalist in the mountain bike uh, cross country in Beijing in 2008 and then finished second in the 2014 Tour de France Jakob Fulsang as well rode in 2008 in the mountain bikes but um pidcock is you know a, i think a different level to to all of those names there even you know even cadel evans really i mean he he's absolutely bossed the best mountain bike riders in the world today and he's already um you know one of the stars of of one day races not just the cobbled ones but the the hilly ones as well the the last thing we need to see is is how he fares in stage races and uh we may well get that opportunity in a couple of weeks time but um yeah, the the heyday of the kind of mountain biking being the future of um cycling. You know, I remember the nineties when Winning Magazine suddenly had a lot of mountain biking in it and I must confess it kind of left me cold. I enjoy riding a mountain bike, I'm not terribly good at it, um, but uh I don't know, the the sort of the John Tomax of this world it never you know, it never really sort of ignited with me. Um and I suppose I I just remember as well at some point in the early 2000s seeing the Paris-Roubaix VTT Velo 2 Terrain which was a two day stage race held on the Paris-Roubaix cobbles Um, and interesting you know great to sort of stand and watch but just didn't have the same didn't sort of grab my heart the same way that that the real Paris-Roubaix did and I'm I'm not really sure why that is it can't just be because the handlebars are straight and the tyres are fatter I don't know it's a, it's a, a strange one to try and explain well, we'll talk about mountain biking again in three years' time, Daniel, I expect. <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't want to sound This is by the fact that I...
2: I, I feel that you know one of the reasons why we might see mountain, well, we might see more cases like Pickock, is that road cycling has become a bit more like mountain biking in the sense that there are there are more more time is spent with these sort of maximal efforts, and you know, mm. it, the the racing does tend to start from the gun, and you know, just as a very much a layman, um, you can see you know watching the the mountain bike race today there were elements of that which reminded me of the first hour in a tour de france stage
1: yeah i mean just very lastly i mean i, I, sat, I don't want to end on a flippant note with the mountain biker because i think what we saw today really shows what a test it is i mean matthew van der poel one of the best bike handlers in the world and made a mistake and uh, you know ended his race uh, pidcock didn't make mistakes uh certainly nothing noticeable and uh and, and won the race and you know it's not it's not easy pickings it's not a case of just turning up and and saying well I, I'm good on the road therefore I can be good uh, in any discipline it's it's not as easy as that I mean I remember Peter Sagan going to the mountain bike race in Rio for five years ago now and um, a lot was uh, expected of him uh, he had a puncture while lying I think he was in, certainly in the top few places wasn't he and it was pretty early on maybe even the first or second lap and he was an out of the picture. Uh, his medal chance was gone. So you know, there, there's a, a luck element to it as well. But you know, in all types of cycling, make your own luck, don't you? I guess. But still think go.
2: still think Pog could do some damage on a Gary Fisher.
1: Well, you were saying about how to how to Pogify the tour or what was what was your phrase about Pog uh, Proof Pog proof. proof the Tour yeah let's Pog Proof the Tour well maybe having back to back Paris-Roubaix type stages that's the only thing I could think of uh, you know th- three or four days uh, in Belgium and Northeastern France might make it difficult for him but uh, well that'd make it difficult for everybody but uh, yeah that's the only th- the only terrain we haven't seen him excel on yet but uh, there's still time uh, we'd better wrap it up there Daniel um We'll be back next week. We may be back with Richard. I don't know. Richard's on a sort of open-ended holiday at the moment. Um, he may be back next week or the week after. He's breaking breaking his holiday to do the Cycling Podcast Feminine, of course. And if you want to hear more from Lizzie Banks, service course returns later this week as well.
2: Is he on a gap year? Is he on a
1: kibbutz? He's on a, he's on a gap fortnight. But until our return, Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you, Lionel.
2: You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter at thecyclingpodcast.com to get all the latest news and special offers delivered straight to your inbox. This episode was edited and produced by Tom Wally.